Hello and welcome to YHTV's Trinity of Life. This is episode 24. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host of this program. Thank you so much for joining me again as I continue to explore the wonderful world of healing arts, meditation, therapies, and modalities of helping us find balance in our individual journeys. We're always excited to meet those who are on the leading edge of creating change on this planet. Today, we have a very, very special guest who has left already a legacy that is trailing behind him as he continues in his journey. We are very, very honored to have with us today Shridhar Silverfine, who is the founder of BhaktiFest. Now, what is BhaktiFest is the main question here. But I do believe that this gentleman, this being's uh, presence on this planet has already created so much change already that we are here to journey with him as he shares his life with us. Thank you. Welcome, Shri. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So as um, I am so honored, um, I really did not know very much about uh, Bhakti Fest. In the last few years, I've heard about it. We've been wanting to go out there. Um, I've heard such wonderful feedback and, and friends and uh, colleagues of ours flying in from all over the country coming to attend your festival. And this year uh, with YHTV, we have, of course, the pleasure and honor of being able to introduce you as the as the founder of this uh, wonderful festival that's been going on, which you have led me to understand that there's even more festivals that you have created. Um, so Sridhar, please share with us a, a little bit of, uh, or a lot of your history, because your life has been so full and magnificent. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, Bhakti Fest first year was 2009, and mm -hmm. this will be our eighth festival since then. We usually have two a year, one in the spring and one in the fall. The next one is coming up September 6th. Uh, we also this year went out to the Midwest and had a festival in Madison, Wisconsin, of all places, and uh, sort of like what's called the Bible Belt. Yes. But we were so well received there. It was absolutely fantastic. It was, we had around 1,200 people and mostly 35 to 65 year olds. and. They were so appreciative that we came there to spread our form of what a festival really is in the yoga tradition. Mm, mm. So we offer unlimited yoga classes for the weekend, and we have 24-hour kirtan. Now, for your listening audiences, kirtan is chanting, but chanting in like the Indian Hindu uh, way of chanting. The chanting is the same as if you go into the Christian church or if you go into the synagogues for the Jewish folks and or if you go into the mosques for the Muslims. When you walk mm -hmm. into those places, they're chanting. They're chanting, they're doing their beads on their rosaries or their different uh, beads that they use for their hand. And it's the same thing when you come to Bhakti Fest. We're, we're chanting. We're chanting 24 hours. We have unlimited amounts of... Uh, Kirtan stars coming in from all over the world that keep the music going on two stages. Mm. We're, we're actually on 450 acres, a very famous retreat center down in Joshua Tree. It's been there 85 years. It was designed oh by God. designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, how magnificent! Now, so you have uh, two. When you say two stages, are there like two tents, or no. or is it open stages? No, actually, we have an, the main stage is an amphitheater, which is covered by shade cloth to protect everybody from sound, mm -hmm. from the sun. And we have a really great sound and big, huge screens for people to see graphics that we project on the screens. And it's surrounded by maybe around 60 uh, vendors and booths that have beautiful wares to share. Uh, then we move up to another area, which is the second stage where again, there's like 30 or 40 vendors surrounding another stage with shade cloth covering the top. The ground is all carpeted, so people feel very comfortable sitting and dancing. And then we have three yoga halls. Oh, one nice. is the, one indoor yoga hall that holds around 170 people and two outdoor 
uh, yoga halls covered by shade cloths and all areas are amplified is music or not depending on the teacher we have one main building that holds uh, around 1500 people and that's called the sanctuary building that's where we have our workshops going from like nine in the morning to seven o'clock every single night there's workshops on different modalities like aromatherapy acupuncture Hindu mythology, scriptures, fabulous stuff by top top people from mm. around the world. You know, when you mention people flying in from all over the country, that's true. But we had over thirty countries fly in uh, last time. We have uh, close to twenty five hundred to three thousand people attending. Oh, magnificent! Congratulations. Yeah, it's really a remarkable festival. It's way different than any other festival in the country. It's because we remain, a, we remain a very kind of pure, sattvic kind of environment. Mm -hmm. When you come there, you feel totally safe. We have 300 uh, beds, accommodating beds on site with sheets and pillows and blankets and towels, plenty of showers and bathrooms. We can camp like two or 3,000 people. And then we take all the hotel rooms in town, Joshua Tree, Yucca Valley, 29 Palms, and we People who want to stay in the hotels can stay there and just commute every day. Oh, magnificent. So people can actually camp there as well with their families and can, is it, is it very family oriented? Very family oriented. We have a big, huge kids tent where we have uh, monitored by a counselor that teaches yoga and uh, arts and crafts. And that goes from morning into the evening. So Parents can take their kids are free, actually, under 12 years old, 12 and under. So families can just drop their kids off if they want. But we encourage kids to be participate in the yoga classes and, and the chanting as well, because it gives them a really good start in life. Yes, to absolutely. have To be in, in an environment that's not violent, that's kind, that's compassionate, and there's a lot of love in the air. Plus, we have a big, giant swimming pool, so, you know, people can swim as much as they want. Oh, that is so fantastic. And now how many days long are each of them three days long? No, this one in September is four days. We start on Thursday morning, September 6th at nine o'clock. We don't finish till Sunday night at midnight. So you can stay in, you can stay up, you can go to sleep part of it. You can come in and out of any classes. It's all unlimited. It's all free. You pay one price and you can enjoy the whole week. And we have eight of the best food vendors there. By the way, we only serve vegetarian food. This is a vegetarian festival and it's non-alcoholic festival and there's no smoking. So if you're looking for that kind of environment, then you've got to go to another festival because we don't have any rock and roll, we don't have any meat, we don't have any cigarettes and we don't have any alcohol. So if that's what you want, which is what you can get every day of your life, you go there. But, but if you want to change and start to get into something a little bit different, start to go deeper in your path, then you come to Bhakti Fest. Isn't that magnificent that um, in your bio, I had read that you, back in 1969, uh, you had said that you wanted to create uh, the Woodstock of uh, spirituality. And you have now. <laughs> How would you compare the two? Well, that's an interesting story. In 69, I was a real estate, a young real estate uh, budding uh, aspirant in New York City. And I was also hanging out, teaching yoga with Swami Satchitananda. I was one of his main teachers and uh, practicing, of course, as I still do now. And now I was this, also I'm sorry, this was in New York City. Yes, in this, the city. In the when city. nobody even knew about yoga. I was going much. to say, yes. Meditation and chanting was... Uh, it was very obscure in 1969. In fact, uh, it was a lot in the 70s also. Uh, in 1969, I was also friends with Michael Lang and Audie Kornfeld, and they were the producers of Woodstock Festival. And I would go over there and hang out with them whilst they were making their plans. And one day they turned around to me and they said, Shrita, what do you think is missing from uh, Woodstock? And I said, well, you got all the great... All the great singers there, or would-be great singers coming on. And I said, but I think it's missing the spiritual aspect. They said, what do you mean? I said, well, we should invite one of the swamis to come and give the invocation. And they said, okay, you take care of that. You produce that segment. 
So I went and invited Swami Satchidananda, who was in one of the few Swamis that were in New York at the time, is also my teacher. And we flew him up by helicopter and he landed and wow. got him up on the stage. And you can actually see this in the Woodstock movie, the, un the director's cut. You can see me walking him up on stage. And a funny little story about that. As the first group that was supposed to be on Woodstock, they got up on the stage and they saw the crowd and they ran away and they hid in the bushes. Oh. And nobody knew who that was. It was a great story. So the producers were running around looking for somebody to get on right away. And so they grabbed Richie Havens and they said, Richie, get up on the stage. You got to open up the festival. So he's up there in the back of the stage strumming up his guitar. He is 500,000 people. He sweats, the sweat pouring out. I mean, he's, he never saw more than 10 people probably in, in a club, but, it, you know, it was huge for everybody. And here we are, I'm walking Swami up the stage. You can see this in the movie. And I turn around, and then I realize there was no one to introduce Swami. So I say to Richie Havens, right? I say to him, oh, Richie, could you do us a favor and introduce Swami Satchitananda? He looked at me and says, get away, kid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about it, he's like, really, right? So... We got the announcer to announce. And then while we were standing there, Swami said, this is going to set the bar for everything else that's going to happen. And at that moment, a light bulb uh, hit in my head that said, wouldn't it be great to have these kind of folks chanting the names mm -hmm. of And 40 years later, 2009 is when we took, our, took the next move. <laughs> That is fantastic. What a great story. <laughs> that, 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 those are the moments that are etched in our minds, aren't they? So I'm, I'm interested, uh, Sridhar, how, how and, and what compelled you to even start your spiritual journey so young? I mean, you look, you look not much over 40. So this is 40 years ago you're talking about. And I'm, I, I'm like going, okay, you were a very, very young lad at the time. What compelled you to go into spirituality and meditation and yoga and in, in the middle of New York City? You, you should have been a New York boy. <laughs> I did some very serious readings and uh, I always had an inclination for it. Eastern uh, religions and Eastern philosophy. Uh, after I graduated college, I dove more deeper into the studies. I found the, my first teacher in New York uh, by the name of Rudy. Nobody really knew him, but he was a devotee, a disciple of a great Indian Bhagavan, Nityananda, who was an avidut, somebody that lived in a loincloth in a place called Ganeshpuri outside of uh, Bombay at the time. And I was very intrigued, and I received at that time what's called Shaktipat, uh, which is the rising of the Kundalini. And mm. at that point, you know, the Kundalini rose up my spine into my head, and you could hear the celestial music and see the colors, and knew that my path was set for me in my life. And I just dove deeper into my yoga practices. I became an advanced teacher in the early days and taught meditation, studied meditation, and. Uh, I also went to a slaughterhouse to see what it was all about, and that, that's how I became a, a long-time vegetarian, which is, uh, I've always maintained that. I don't have any meats or any chickens or any fish and very, very little dairy. I, I can call that to my health and my ability to be able to put on a festival like this, which is a very... And for most cases, a 24-hour week, you know, takes a year from one year to the next to, to run one of these festivals. And But I have an amazing staff led by my actual daughter, Mukti, oh. 36 years old, and she's uh, the rock of the whole festival. And it, it, it proves that you can work, uh, families can work together, fathers and daughters. I know it's, it's hard for most people, but... At the end of the festival, when I introduce everybody on Sunday night, I tell, I tell everybody, this is an example of how you can work together with your, with your children. Oh, magnificent, magnificent. Um, I, this, is, this is so exciting because you're really setting a precedent for families. 
but you've set a precedent in our society, uh, you know, on a global scale, and that's that's how I see it. Um, and I, I'm just still trying to get over the fact that you were this young lad in the middle of New York City, uh, <laughs> you know, just moving yourself towards an area where there was either no interest or a lot of fear around because people didn't understand it. I mean, even to this day, I, I'm sure you still run into people who who don't understand the spiritual world, who don't realize how, you know, or their their reasoning is because their religion doesn't allow them to attend uh, um, a gathering like this. Um, uh, how do you approach or how do you, uh, work with people that might might come with you with those that sort of reasoning. Well, I tell everybody that the bhakti fast, the yoga or chanting, it's not a religion. It's not a religious based situation. You know, we have every conceivable religion. People come from all over the world, and their basic belief structure is their religion, and they come and they enjoy it because it's so open and so free. We don't indoctrinate. We don't have people join anything. We have great uh, charities and causes that we uh, benefit, that Bhakti Fest benefits, which I'll talk to you about later on. But people cannot, they, there's no fear behind coming. You know, you don't have to join, you don't have to give any monies, you pay your fees to come in and that's it. Uh, you enjoy your weekend and you go home. Hopefully you take what you got there, the Bhakti, the love and the devotion and compassion and take it home and experience it in your life, which is what we want people to do. There's so much lack of love and compassion and integrity in, in everybody's life. And, you know, people are still listening to the government and to the big mega corporations and the pharmaceutical companies that have actually taken over our way of life. When you look at 30, 40% of America on uh, substance abuse drugs and Medicaid, Medicaid, they want to keep everybody in a dull state so they don't think about anything. They can't step out. I like to use the phrase, people are living in a box all the time. They wake up in a box, they go to the kitchen and eat out of a box, the refrigerator and the cereal, they get into their car in a box and they drive to work in the mm. box, stay in there all day and they come home at night, go back into their box. That's what they want. That's what the government wants. That's how they keep people controlled and in, into a space. We want to set it up and open it up to people, you know, when that we're not anti this or anti that, but we do have our feelings about things, and we realize that the pharmaceuticals and the and the big corporations are taking over all aspects of our lives. So we got to set the bar. We have to continue to give something to the people that they can feel safe in. They don't have to worry about always having to be in that state. We have a food drive. When you come to Bhakti Fest, you bring a can or a box of food, and we donate it to the local food bank. We have a proposition that's coming up in the California elections for uh, labeling GMO. We have uh, yes. We have a lot of causes that we believe in that we want people to be exposed to that they might not be exposed to in their regular life. So by coming to our festival, it's not just coming and doing yoga and meditating and doing chanting, which is enough, as, as it says, but there's an opportunity to look at other places that you might be able to get involved in. You know, mm -hmm. if, if do a little bit every day to help people, to bring a flower to an old age home. You know, in this country, people uh, were raised by our parents, but then when our parents get old, they, we put them right into an old age home, into a, a, a living situation, mm -hmm. because we don't have time, nor the patience. But what happened to their patients when they when we were growing up with them, you know, yeah, <laughs> when we abused them? So, you know, to take a little time to go to a hospital, to visit a, a, a sick person, or bring a piece of candy or, or flour, a piece of food to an old age home, you know, that's that's what we what we're lacking, you know, community service. Yes, yes. Lovely, lovely. Um how uh, may I ask how many children you have? I have four children. You have four. Children and two grandchildren. Oh, blessings! Oh my gosh! And how old are the grandchildren? Forty-year-old son, a thirty-six-year-old daughter, a twenty-three-year-old son, and a thirteen-year-old daughter. 
My goodness, a nice span. So you really got to enjoy each of them as they came into the world. And they're all very close, and I'm still enjoying my children. We all spend a lot of time together. We travel together. We spend a lot of good time, and I encourage my kids to spend time, even though some of them don't have the same mothers. I encourage them all to speak and talk and hang out with each other and really be there for each other. Lovely. And and um, and your daughter, is the, the your second, is the only one that works with you in your company. Uh, my my youngest son comes on during the festival time and he works there too and my younger daughter 13 she works in the children's booth and in the chai booth serving a chai and she helps out with some of the charity booths as well oh how magnificent how magnificent oh she forward to counting the days down you know bringing her friends and spending some nice time well i i think you know that's so lacking in the communities today and and what you say about uh, community service, what you say about our elders, which, you know, very much, uh, you know, I come from an Asian sort of Portuguese background. And basically, you know, it is the care of our elders, which is just as important as the care of our own children. You know, it's the give back. It's that cycle of life. And, um, you know, I've, I've just come to terms with understanding how, uh, well, in the middle of Los Angeles, of course, um, just seeing uh, what happens in the school systems and having that understanding now where the parents really no longer not only not make time for the elders, they no longer make time for the children. So I had an interesting experience for, with that 13 years ago. When my, my youngest daughter was just about ready to be born. I was not there. I was in Florida with my dying mother at the time, who was 93 years old. I was oh, taking care of her for like uh, a month. And uh, at that point, point where I knew she was going to be dying, at the same time, my daughter was just about ready to be birthed. And uh, I contacted a very dear friend of mine by the name of Ram Das, very famous philosopher. I've written a great book who I've been spending time with for the last 40 years. I actually moved into Maui and took care of him for the last eight years uh, as a payback to the elderly situation that we were just talking about, which we can get. And I said, Ramdas, I'm out here in Florida. My mother's dying any moment. My daughter's being born. What do you do? I mean, where do you go? Do you go to be with the birth of your daughter who's just coming into this world, or do you stay with your dying mother who's leaving this world? He said, you stay your dying mother yeah. and help her through the transition because it's a very fearful place. Your daughter you'll be with for the rest of your, her life and your life. Your mother is leaving you. So you stay there and you help her. And I stayed there and I nurtured my mother and I did mantras and recitations of prayers and mm. held her in arms as she left her body. And it was a very positive, very fulfilling moment for all of us. I, I, that is such a, thank you for sharing that, that, that very personal moment. It's, um, I agree with you that those moments in our life, we will never get back, but um, to help a individual through transition, which I tend to call a rebirth, you know, yes. we're birthing them into that next life. It is another life that they're going into. And, and if they can step over that veil gracefully, it's such a beautiful event yes and and so how wonderful how wonderful that you had that opportunity i strongly recommend it for everybody i know we all have to go through the the birth of our children and the death of our parents but to be there for our parents uh, at that time and not just uh, slough it off or say we're too busy or things like that Besides that, it's a very good healing time between parents and children. Mm. And children. Mm. So by that point in time, you had accomplished so much. How did your, your parents feel of this journey of yours where their son who was busy in real estate suddenly venturing off into this spiritual land? <laughs> At, uh, by that time in 1970, I actually met my first guru. I had to teach a Swami Satchinanda, but then I met my first guru, who was Swami Muktananda, who came to America in 1970. And when I met him, I was with Ram. I met Ram Das at the same time. It was a very 
potent weekend up in Big Indian, New York, upstate New York, and we had a weekend retreat. There may be been a hundred people there. And Swami Muktananda brought actually Shaktipat to America, a very famous guru. Uh, and he asked me and Ramdas to organize this trip around country. And that's how I wound up in California in 1970. So then I uh, was living in Ojai and I had the inspiration in the middle of the night. I was with my first wife at the time and I had the uh, inspiration came during my meditation. It said, go to Topanga. Huh. So I woke, woke up in the morning and I said, I got to go to Topanga. So my wife said, why? I, I said, well, this inspiration came, this divine epiphany came and said, I have to go. I'll be back later on today. So I jumped in and beat up Volkswagen and I drove <laughs> to Canyon and I was driving up and down the boulevard looking for the sign of why I should be here up and down, up and down for hours. And then I passed a little tiny sign said for rent. There's a little tiny room in a big building. It's eight by 12 and it was $50 a month. And I called up the landlord and I had him come down. I looked at the inside, it was a tiny little eight by 12. And I took it, I signed the lease. I gave him the $50 deposit. <laughs> I drove back up and I said, pack up, we're moving to Topanga. And, and she said, what are we going to do? I said, well, open up a spiritual bookstore or open up a health food store. Wow. People knew about natural foods at that time. So we opened up the first natural food store in Southern California. And that was called the Food Chakra, C-H-A-K-R-A, -A, the Food Chakra. <laughs> and eventually took over all the, uh, other build, all the other spaces in that building. And the upstairs, we turned into a... A meditation and yoga teaching place and, and we bought a whole bunch of other real estate in Topanga and that's how it all got started but getting back to my mother she loved what I was doing with meditation and uh and yoga and the business aspects but she was never really in keen on the guru stuff <laughs> you know was she of a specific uh religion herself she was Jewish, but she never really practiced, but she was a very advanced psychic and she was able to tell us pretty much what was going to happen in the future. She knew it very clearly, you know, mm. of course, you know, when you're young, you don't really listen to your parents that much. <laughs> comes back to me anyhow now with my kids, but I see the balance that you have to be, it has to be a balance and respect the intuitive nature of, of the understanding. Mm. On that, uh, separate the attachment from the intuitiveness. Um, you mentioned uh, at one point that Swami uh, uh, Sitchidananda was your teacher, and then later you found your first guru. Now, can you tell us the difference between a teacher and a guru? Because that's where many people get confused. You know, it's, uh, we're, we're all teachers for each other. You and I are teaching each other right now. So, and, and that's what we share in each other's lives all the time. I've always wanted to be spending time with people that are elders of mine and more advanced in the teaching than mine. So they were always teachers for me. Uh, I always respected that. But a guru is somebody that, uh, you know, your parents take you to the bridge, but the guru takes you over the bridge. Your parents can't take you there. They can only, the parents teach you only what their experience of life was or is. And so the school can only teach you their interpretation of what the books are. The religions teach you their interpretations of, they don't even teach you what the original teachings were of Buddha, of Christ, of Moses because it's all been changed over mm -hmm. the century and uh, it's all man's interpretation and that comes out of man's ego. So it's a, uh, it's a whole different aspect. So you have to delve into these things yourself. You have to dive in, you have to don't take no and don't take maybes for an answer. You have to really look and study for yourself. And I'm very big believer of the guru disciple relationship and uh, jumping into uh, spending time with gurus, you have to also know who to spend time with and who not to, because there's always controversies around all gurus. 
Uh, people are always afraid I have to give up my money. I have to give up my time. Mm -hmm. and my the way I look at it is you're only giving up your, your, uh, your ego. Uh, that's really what it is, you're giving up your ego. And I don't have any problems with doing that. Mm. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, now there is a little clarity because uh, the word guru tends to be used quite often here in the Western Hemisphere uh, as of the recent years. And uh, so that helps to define a very good clarity, I, I, I do believe, for our audience. Well, so, a, lot, yes. a, lot, a lot of people uh, call themselves gurus. And you have to look at their lineage. You have to look at how they got to that place and what their background is and delve into it. And uh, I spend time with a lot of teachers and a lot of people. That's what I advocate and what I tell people. Expose yourself to as much as you can. And, you know, even though some gurus say not to go to other people, I say go to everybody. Experience everybody, which I have always done. I've always been open to all the teachings and experiences and everything. And, you know, I had a great moment with uh, Dalai Lama around three or four years back in, in uh, Maui when he came. And I was able to spend some time with him personally. And then again in India. And even though I'm not Buddhist by tradition, I got a lot from that and got a lot from his teachings. Uh, don't you feel through uh, your experience with a lot of the the gurus, or I, I call the, the masters, the, the true wisdom keepers out there, that they do encourage uh, those that are beyond the ego, do encourage you to actually experience as much as you can. Yes, they do. But most of them that come to America only want you to be with them. Mm. <clears throat> they can control the aspects of everything. Um, so, so here you are in the middle of Topanga Canyon. Uh, and you've basically really set set yourself in uh, almost in one area. Um, you became known there. You brought a lot of the different teachers from India to your center. We were host there with uh, Swami Satchinanda came over and we hosted Muktananda and Amaji, the hugging saint. She came there for 17 years. Every time she came to L.A., she stayed at our home. Wow, <clears throat> seven. So she's been coming for a long time. We, uh, I met her in 1988, and I invited her to come to Southern California, and she's been coming there ever since. So when when you met her, you were in India when you met her. I actually met her at uh, Unitarian Church in Berkeley in 1988 when there was maybe a hundred people that came to listen to her there. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, now it's a whole nother deal now. So are, are you, do you continue to host her events now? Is because, well, because I moved in 2004. I uh, don't host her in Los Angeles. And uh, I do happen to do some driving. I drive her in the RV from San Ramon, California to Los Angeles. And the first in 2004, when we got out of the RV at somebody else's house, she turned around and said, Oh, when are we going to go to Sridhar's? And the Swami, the Swami said, there's more Sridhar's, you know. It was a very beautiful moment. Oh. So so you completely gave up your, your property in the Topanga? Yes, I did. I, I, I sold that in 2004 because I had a visiting teacher, Swami Kaleshwar, that told me that the, uh, that the Vastu, was not correct. Now, most people don't know the meaning of Vastu, V-A-A-S-T-U. It's the Indian analog to Feng Shui. Uh, mm -hmm. Feng Shui is maybe a couple thousand years old. Most people know Feng Shui. It's the alignment of different aspects of the house. But Vastu is the alignment of the whole property, the land, the, the entranceways, the water sources, the kitchens, the everything, the rooms, the bedrooms, the offices, everything, the bathrooms. It's a very big aspect. He said, your do is not good here. And I said, what do you mean, Swami? We've had all these great spiritual teachers that came and visited us here. He said, well, your southern slope is, uh, your energy is going out in the southern slope, and you're never going to have a happy relationship here with a, with a female, with a woman. So I said, Swami, you should have told me that a while ago. You would have saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> 
so he came back the next year and said, "You still." I tried to do some corrections. He said, "You still didn't do enough. You have to leave." I said, "I've been here thirty years. How can I pick up and leave? I mean, I had temples and artifacts from all over the world from my mm. travels." He says, "You got to leave." So. I sold it and I moved down to Topanga and there I created a, a move to a Joshua Tree and there I created a beautiful three acre retreat center that I live on. That's now probably around 92% Vastu orientated. It's really a very high vibratory place to live on. And I'm just finishing the temple that I'm building there now. It will be ready in two weeks. Wow. Perfect for Bhakti Fest. We'll just celebrate it on your three acres. <laughs> I do, I do, I actually leave the property and I move down to the retreat site, but I do have uh, some dignitaries from India, Radnath Swami, who's coming, he stays at the house, and Sham Das, who comes in from India, some very wonderful teachers that stay at the house and they commute back and forth to the uh, festival. Magnificent. Um, so now, before you moved to Joshua Tree, did you have Vashtu done on the property? Uh, on the property too, in Joshua Tree? Yes. Actually, I was, uh, Swami sent a, uh, one of his main teachers down there, and uh, he went around to the various properties that I was looking at, and uh, he uh, said yes to this, no to that, yes to this, you know? and. Uh, he said the one I was going to live in was like 88% at that time. And he told me what to change. And I started changing it over the years. Oh, my goodness. And everything, because I thought to myself, oh, I, I would hate to have seen you get established again. And they come in and say, this is not right. <laughs> but I, I knew that I had to take advantage of that knowledge and check yes. everything for him. So do you, um, are you familiar with Feng Shui? I'm familiar with Vastu, Feng Shui, I don't know, I'm not intimate with it because I didn't study it. Yes, yes. I, I'm wondering of the similarities, if, you know, they're both so ancient. But, but Feng Shui really comes from the base of the principles of Vastu. I see. So there's really wonderful books out there on Vastu. If you really want to look at them, just get on Google and, and check out Vastu and pick up some books for your listeners. Then you can really look around your house and your land and maybe realign some things and you'll see right away just making small simple changes how things will yes change, change in your life yes i i, I was uh, brought up a little bit around that so i i truly believe in in uh that the geomancy basically that's wonderful so <clears throat> so coming back to to your life and and what you are doing and the change that you continue to create on this planet um, you were uh, sharing with us, of course, uh, um, as, as before we go forward, uh, could you share with our listeners um, bhakti, the word bhakti, and what the meaning of that is? Well, there's a lot of different meanings. Our meaning for bhakti is love and devotion mm -hmm. and mixing there with compassion, you know, spending time in what we call the bhav, B-H-A-V. So we have a little saying, be in the bhav. You know, so when you come to Bhakti Fest, you get into the bog, you get into that feeling, and uh, you experience a lot of love there, a lot of, uh, a lot of community, a lot of family, and uh, you know, there's no, you don't have to look over your shoulder when you come to Bhakti Fest. You know, everything is a safe environment which we create, and we really watch for that. You know, mm. of course, I have security people and stuff like that, but you know, the security people that we have, they say. It's the best festival that they ever work on because there's never any security to, to manage. That's so, nice. Nice. So they just go around just making sure, you know, we have a 24-hour first aid situation. So bhakti is really diving into your inner self, into this spiritual aspect of yourself and going deeply in what's called the sadhana. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have God that dwells inside of us our own beings. You know, God is in everything and everybody. And it's also mostly in us, totally in us. So you really want to see God, you dive deep inside your own path into your own 
meditation, your own sadhana. That's the bhav, that's the bhakti. And sad being around people that are also doing that is very important. You know, the right association is key to this whole path. Spending time with people that are right, not light minds and right associations. You know, very easy to maintain the, you know, the, the lifestyle. And you know, we just had a question the other day that somebody called up. We have a little segment called "Ask the Elders" on our website. Someone said, "Oh, my friends all go out and we all go drinking and carousing every week, and and go to bars and picking up girls, stuff like that." And, I'm really getting tired of that because I really want to practice more yoga and more meditation and read scriptures and, you know, get into more deeper. And, uh, you know, the answer to that was, you know, continue to do that and bring your friends over to do the same thing with them. You know, uh, it's easy just to always revert back to the way it's always been. Yes. But I'm now in this paradigm now, in today's uh, conditions with such difficulty with uh, the economy and with the wars and our country being torn apart with this agenda and this right wing and this uh, political thing, we got to stick together here. we got to come back to what's real and what's right and, and love. And, and we have to teach that to our children instead of, we have to be an example to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm balance in our families, in our household, and eating food, and getting heavy through our wrong diets, and no lack of exercise. It's got to change. Mm -hmm. it's We're hopefully making a statement by coming to Bakhtinfest. We've had corporations that I don't believe in want to come and be sponsors of us, but we want to take their money because we don't believe in what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. so. It's very important. Maintain your principles no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is Bhakti Fest, and you mentioned that you have a Shakti Fest. We have uh, the spring event, which is in May. It's called the Shakti Fest. It's around Mother's Day weekend, and uh, the same location, Joshua Tree Retreat Center. And we devote that weekend to divine feminine, the divine mother aspect in everybody. I find nowadays most men are afraid to get in touch with their female feminine aspect. That's why relationships are always getting blocked like that, you know, and, and getting torn apart. Mm -hmm. So I, I want everybody to come to Shakti Fest and experience this really divine quality inside them and open up that beautiful quality of the feminine nature, the softness, the love, the caring, uh, the giving, you know, the motherly aspect. So we have the Shakti Fest. And, and how long has that been? Uh, I think, did you develop that like one or two years ago? Well, the first year was uh, two years back and we had the name Bhakti Fest. Last year, we changed the name to Shakti Fest and it'll be called the Shakti Fest every year. And it is distinctly different from Bhakti Fest? We have more female presenters, more female teachers, more female workshops, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and do you feel that because it's more female-oriented or more towards the feminine that you tend to have less uh, of the male counterpart coming to that festival? Well, it's funny. If a, male, if a man really wants to meet a wonderful woman, they should come to that festival. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> okay, gentlemen, you heard that one. That is a, a very, very smart thing to do. You will definitely be surrounded. <laughs> because a lot of men and women also go to the yoga classes all over California and around the country. And besides wanting to get their life changed, it's a great meeting place. You know, it's a much better meeting place than going to bars and, and sink places, you know. And we have a great assortment of wonderful men and wonderful women that come to Bhakti Fest in September. So, and we had, first two years, we had two weddings there uh, at Bhakti Fest. Oh, magnificent. Last, year, last time we uh, had it, we had a engagement. And uh, we heard about this uh, man wanted to make a proposal to his girlfriend 
and we had him upstage on Saturday night right after one of our oh. main acts. Gave him the, we introduced him, and then he took the microphone, and he said a few words, and then he invited up this girl on the stage, and he got down on his hands and knees, and yeah, gave her, opened up a ring, and he proposed to her. Oh, magnificent. You actually see all that on our website, uh, www.bhaktifest.com. And every week we post a new video there. We have a very elaborate website. Uh, please join and uh, enter your email. We have contests. We have freebies. We have discounted tickets. And it's plus we have, a, we talk about our charities, uh, a certain yes. amount of proceeds go to five or six charities that we change every year. And, um, you know, to benefit a lot of starving children around the world and things like that. So, and so, so, so the, the funds and the proceeds that you gain through your festivals, um, you, you mentioned that you'd provide for charities. Now, is that internationally? Yes. A portion of the proceeds, of course, we can't give a hundred percent because that wouldn't be realistic because mm -hmm. you do have to pay the bills of the associated with the festival. Yes. But we amount every year and every year it gets more the more attendance we have the more money the Bhakti Fest makes we tend to give more money to the charities yes yes how wonderful Work. and of, of course as popular as you are it's uh, much easier for you to help to uh, attain the sponsorships as well from the different companies yes we mostly have health food related companies that that we look for, for uh, since I was in that industry for so long um, mm. Had healthy story. I actually started one of the first natural cosmetic companies in the country. And and which is that? It's called Desert Essence. Oh yes, yes, we've seen that for sure. It's still a, it's still out there, going very strong. I actually discovered a very important oil called tea tree oil, which most people know. They know now, but even five, six years ago, they were not familiar with it at all. You know, I, I work with uh, the healing arts. So, you know, we were working with that oil for quite a few years, but it's only really, what, five, six years that people are starting to immerse themselves a little bit more into that. I have a great story about that if you'd like to hear it. Oh, please. It was 1979-80, and I was hiking with the Aborigines in northern uh, Queensland with uh, and we came upon this little lake, and one of the uh, elders said, jump in. So, of course, I was going to listen to him, so I took all my clothes off, Nick, and I jumped in, and I screamed, and I jumped out, and all around the lake was these tea tree oil bushes, tea tree plant bushes, and all the sap leached into the lake, and I was covered with tea tree oil. Oh. Of course, you don't. I realized later that you don't never put tea tree oil on your privates. <laughs> uh, but it was a good lesson. And I noticed over the next day or so that everything miraculously cured on my body's scars and, uh, and broken things and uh, capillaries and muscles and things like that. Everything was changing, you know, uh, on, uh, everything disappeared. So I went back and, uh, I, I made like 30 products for tea tree oil and uh, I brought it to the industry. And I remember introducing it at the Anaheim show the first year I had it. And I said, this is going to be so big. And everybody, I opened up the bottle and everybody could say, oh, I would never put that on my body. Oh, my gosh. Now it got started. Amazing. Amazing. So, so it had never been seen in this country before. And you actually brought the first samples in. And I made the first products. Magnificent. What a great story. It's, <laughs> you kind of go, oh, wow. I, uh, nature, right? Nature, tea tree oil leaching into a pond. I mean, what? how would you even put those together? <laughs> your, your guides have such a way of guiding you in this life. <laughs> I, I, every day when I wake up, I thank, I go, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me another day on this planet, be able to serve and to love and to be in that space. Oh, yes. Oh, my so goodness. So, so now 
Do you, are you still uh, with that? Do you still have that company? No, I, I sold that. No, I start companies and uh, I build them up. And I'm a lousy manager, by the way. I really don't like to manage companies or manage people. I just am a creative kind of genius guy that likes to create things and help them. I probably won't even have Baki Fest after. Next, maybe next time we talk, uh, I might be off to doing something else. But uh, right now, that's what it is for me now. That's why you have your daughter run it for you. <laughs> that's smart. Train everyone else around you to take over the things that they like to do. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's that's wonderful. Um, so, I so, think back to next year. We're looking to do six festivals, and then we want to go international, and we will unexpose Bhakti to everybody because this is a wonderful thing that Bhakti Fest does, and we want more and more people to come and, and experience it. Um, so, if you wow, it's so much to put on one festival. I mean, those of us who've been in production or anything, we understand that. So for you now, you have three every year, right? You have the Bhakti here in, in Joshua Tree, the Bhakti in the Midwest, and Shakti Fest also in Joshua Tree. And so you're wanting to expand it nationally so that there's other festivals that makes it a, a little more convenient for those in different parts of the country to attend. Um, do you see this going globally? You can't stop the flow of love and uh, truth and compassion. You know, nobody can put a damper on that. People try, you know, governments and people try, but truth is truth and love is love. It'll never be stopped. Stop. It'll just always be enhanced. More and more people are getting into yoga. I mean, classes are packed all over the country. Yeah. Huge industry now. It's a lot of big corporations are getting into it as well. You know, we like to keep the purity of it. We like to keep the purity, pure aspect of it. The chanting.